It's February 23rd, 2024, and you're joining another episode of The Science of Self, where you improve your life from the inside out. Today, we're diving into the zone of proximal development, a concept explored in Peter Holland's book, The Art of Practice. Have you ever felt stuck learning a new skill? Like you're just outside your comfort zone, but not quite sure how to bridge the gap? Well, the zone of proximal development offers a fascinating explanation for this experience. It's the sweet spot between your current abilities and your potential, where you can learn and grow with the help of a mentor, teacher, or even your own inner voice. In this episode, we'll explore how the zone of proximal development helps us acquire new skills, the importance of supportive learning environments, and finding the right, more knowledgeable other. The role of pressure and self-talk in maximizing your learning potential. Strategies to manage stress and navigate the different stages of skill development. So whether you're picking up a new hobby or aiming for professional growth, understanding the zone of proximal development can be your key to unlocking your full potential. Stay tuned and let's embark on this journey of self-discovery together Remember, for more information on this episode in the book, visit bit.ly slash Peter Hollins. Lev Vygotsky was a Soviet developmental psychologist who was very interested in, amongst other things, the way that human beings acquire skills. In particular, he investigated the way that children learn to do what they do and what that might imply about human beings in general, not to mention how we might learn better or perhaps unlearn when necessary. Vygotsky proposed his theory of the zone of proximal development. Traditionally, educational psychologists had always focused on what a child could do at each stage of their development and how to measure their ability. Vygotsky challenged this and proposed that there are really two stages of development that run in parallel. One, the child's actual level of competence when tested. Two, the child's potential level, i.e., what they were capable of when tested with guidance and support from other people or the environment. So, Vygotsky noticed that, for example, child A would perform at level 5 and child B would perform at level 6, but when given help and guidance, child A was able to perform at level 8, while child B was able to perform at level 7. The difference between actual competence and potential competence he called the zone of proximal or potential development. Importantly, this zone varied in size across different children. Now, this might not seem like such a big deal. Does it matter how much you can do with help? Vygotsky's genius was to notice just what a big difference it does make. In fact, he thought that what a child could do with assistance was a far greater predictor of personal and mental development than what they could do unassisted. As he explained it, what a child can do today with assistance he can do tomorrow unassisted. In our example, 
it's actually child A who has less initial competence who will learn and develop the most. You may have noticed yourself how children take part in this process all the time. When they play games of pretend, they always assume the role of someone with far greater competencies than themselves. Identifying with this greater role and carefully monitoring themselves so they emulate it perfectly is precisely how they move from their actual skill level to learning something new. Role play, usually of adult characters, requires additional attention, self-awareness, reflection, and adjustment on the part of the child, who must continually make sure they remain in character. As they do so, they learn. We can understand this zone to be the very place where learning occurs. If you only ever do what you already know how to do, then, naturally, you'll fail to learn. But if you attempt to do something you cannot even begin to do, even with help, you will also fail to learn. You need, as it were, that middle spot where you have mental training wheels. In this zone, individuals can learn and acquire new skills with the guidance of a more knowledgeable other, MKO, such as a teacher, mentor, or parent. This zone represents the space where learners can progress from basic abilities to more complex tasks with the support and assistance of someone who possesses greater knowledge and expertise in the subject matter. Vygotsky's concept highlights the importance of supportive learning environments to facilitate effective education and skill development, too. In other words, it's not just people who can guide and support new competencies until they're strong enough to stand on their own. In this second category of support, we can include things like tools and technology of all kinds. Learning to speak is an example of the ZPD, where children are immersed in an environment with skilled adults who provide constant feedback and various aids or scaffolds to enhance their verbal communication. Revisiting our stages of mastery from the previous section, we can see how increasing competence also arises in a social context. 1. Unconscious incompetence. You don't know how to tie your shoelaces. Frankly, you don't even understand what shoelaces are for and don't care. 2. Conscious competence. Everyone at kindergarten is learning to tie shoelaces, and you're suddenly aware that you don't, and it's quite hard. Conscious competence. Your mom holds your hands in hers as she slowly shows you the movements you need to do. Gradually, you mimic her and get better and better at making the knot, till she can take her hands off yours and you can tie the bow yourself. You think that's pretty good. 4. Unconscious competence. You're now middle-aged and tie your shoes literally without thinking about it. In the above example, 
your mom's hands on yours are a manifestation of the zone of proximal development. Following her lead, you slowly learn to do it. Had nobody bothered to teach you this skill, chances are you would have taken a lot longer to figure it out for yourself. It was against the scaffolding of your mother's skillful help that you tied your own fledgling efforts to at first. Your learning was not so much about your intelligence or creativity, but your ability to work with someone who knew how to do what you were still unable to. Scaffolds can be physical or mental aids, such as using props in yoga or mnemonic devices to remember music staff lines. Fading is then the gradual process of removing these scaffolds, i.e. taking the training wheels off, as individuals become proficient in the skill on their own. The ZPD is a powerful framework for understanding how we learn best from others and accelerate our progress in various domains. In a way, it may seem obvious, but in other ways, it directly challenges many assumptions about how learning works. There's never a clear, sharp line between what we can and can't do. The growing edge, as it were, is not self-generated, but arises because of interaction with the social environment. Genius and raw talent are great things, but the ability to really work well within your ZPD is the true essence of learning. Here's how to apply the zone of proximal development theory to your practice. Assess your current position and learning style. Determine where you currently stand in terms of knowledge and skills and identify the areas you want to improve. Understand how you learn best, whether it's through modeling, detailed instructions, hands-on practice, etc. You may not even have this insight yet, in which case a teacher or mentor will be particularly helpful. For instance, if you're trying to be a better cook, start by evaluating your current cooking abilities. Identify the types of dishes you can already cook confidently and those that might be a step up from your current level. Next, consider how you prefer to learn cooking skills, whether you learn best by following written recipes, watching video tutorials, or having someone demonstrate the cooking process for you. Seek out a more knowledgeable other, MKO. Look for someone who possesses expertise in the skills you want to develop. This could be a teacher, a tutor, a peer, an expert, or even online tutorials. Communicate your preferred learning style to the MKO and seek their guidance and support in acquiring new skills. For instance, engage with your chosen MKO or resource to learn new cooking skills and recipes. Pay attention to their instructions, techniques, and tips. Use their skill to bootstrap your own. As you try out new recipes, follow along with the guidance provided. It's essential to have a learning-oriented mindset, embrace mistakes as part of the learning process, and be open to feedback and improvement. If 
Instead, your mindset is fixed. I'll only ever know what I know now. And you find errors and corrections humiliating? You'll be passing up on the precious chance to learn more quickly and more effectively. Test and apply the new skill independently. After working with the MKO, practice the new skill on your own. Assess whether you have internalized the instructions and feedback received during the learning process. If you feel confident and capable of applying the skills independently, you have successfully progressed within your zone of proximal development. Continue this process of learning, seeking new MKOs, and advancing your skills. After cooking the new meals with the guidance of the MKO or resource, evaluate your results and assess your learning. Ask yourself if you have successfully internalized the techniques and instructions. Are you now able to cook the dish independently? If you feel confident and satisfied with your cooking, you have effectively advanced within your zone of proximal development for cooking that particular dish. Congratulations. Crack out the wine and enjoy it. The Yerkes-Dodson Law A closely related principle is called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. Even if you're not familiar with this term, however, you've probably experienced it firsthand in your own life. An example will illustrate the idea neatly. Tyler has just landed his first job out of college and is thrilled. He's pretty nervous, but the pressure seems to fire him up and he's full of energy for the first few months, loving the new challenge and feeling inspired to push out of his comfort zone a little. Life is good. He's learning new things constantly, rising to challenges, and earning a name for himself. After a year, he's promoted. He can't believe his luck. Everyone around him admires how much he is thriving. That beautiful state of mind called flow? He's in it all day, every day. In a year's time, he gets promoted again, this time to a formidable role known for making high demands on people. More than anyone, Tyler knows the value of pushing yourself, though, so despite his apprehension, he accepts the new position. This time it feels different, though. It quickly becomes clear that the challenge alone is no longer energizing him. He's genuinely lost at times and starts making pretty big mistakes. Things start to feel rushed and out of his control. He isn't even sure who to tell that he's struggling or how they could even help him. In fact, each new demand seems to just fill him with dread. He doesn't get it. He loves this field, he loves his work, and he used to be inspired by challenge. These days he wakes up and thinks, I'm actually a big fraud and a loser. Clearly I can't do this thing. It's just too hard. What happened? Well, according to psychologists Robert Yerkes and John Dodson, Tyler is simply experiencing a particularly skewed ratio of arousal. That's stress to you and me, and performance. The theory, 
first put forward in 1908, is based on experiments with rats motivated by electric shocks to escape a maze. The inverted U-curve graphically represents the relationship between their arousal state and their performance, showing that performance actually improves with moderate pressure, reaches a peak, and then declines if pressure becomes too high or too low. This is what happened to poor Tyler. He was a rat who found the sweet spot, but then went beyond it and experienced a drop in performance. According to the theory, peak performance occurs when the level of pressure matches the task's demands. We tend to imagine that the world would be great with zero stress, but this is not quite true. Some stress is useful, since it motivates and inspires us. Otherwise, there'd be no such thing as fun competition, right? When pressure is too low, people lack motivation and may approach their work in a lazy manner. Basically, they get bored. This is the area to the far left of the graph, where pressure is low, and so is performance. In contrast, when pressure is too high, it overwhelms people rather than inspires them. Their performance drops off as they feel anxious, rushed, intimidated, confused, or that awful sense of dread that Tyler felt. It's easy to see why. Faced with a task that is so difficult you know you couldn't possibly crack it, what else would you feel but a sense of defeat? The middle of the curve represents the optimal state where individuals are both motivated by pressure and yet not overloaded, enabling them to experience flow, a highly productive and enjoyable state of work. Achieving this balance is key to achieving one's personal best. There are two big insights from this observation. One, stress is helpful, provided it's at the right level. Two, while struggling at a task is often a result of the demand being too great and arousal being too high, you can just as well experience poor performance because you're not stressed enough. You've probably spotted the overlap between this diagram and the zone of proximal development. Our area of best performance is analogous to the zone of proximal development. We fare better when challenges are just beyond our capabilities, but not massively so. A big mistake Tyler could make now, however, is to decide he's burnt out and overstressed and completely turn down the demand on himself. He would then overshoot and find himself in the boredom zone and again underperforming. We see again that optimal learning, growth, and development are never a one-size-fits-all solution, and our best approach is likely to change over time, just as we change and our needs and blind spots change too. Sometimes the best tactic will be to increase the challenge. Sometimes the best tactic will be to do the exact opposite. You may start out doing things a certain way, and it may genuinely work, but that doesn't mean you should stick to that strategy forever. The Yerkes-Dodson Law goes on to identify four key influencers of this overall relationship between arousal or stress and performance. 
1. Skill level. 2. Personality. 3. Trait anxiety. 4. Task complexity. This is a big deal. What counts as stress for you may not seem that way to someone else, and experts will have different challenges and experiences to beginners. Furthermore, context is obviously a big part of it, and so is the skill complexity and difficulty, i.e., are you talking about tying shoelaces or building software for a particle accelerator? Skill level influences performance and may require adjusting pressure to maintain engagement. Personality also plays a role, with extroverts potentially performing better in high-pressure situations, while introverts may thrive with low pressure. Trait anxiety, or a person's self-talk, can impact performance, with confident individuals better able to handle pressure. They tend to have a bigger zone of proximal development, because their guiding teacher is actually their own inner voice coaching them through. Something to think about. Task complexity affects how individuals respond to pressure, with simple tasks being more suitable for higher pressure and complex tasks benefiting from a calmer environment. To use insights from this law, consider the following tips. Align practice sessions with your energy levels. Pay attention to your energy patterns and identify when you feel most alert and focused. Schedule your practice sessions during these peak energy times. This will enable you to make the most of your cognitive abilities and enhance your learning experience. Reserve periods of low energy for lighter tasks or breaks, allowing you to recharge. And don't forget also, to schedule the most challenging task at the beginning of your peak energy zone. Find the optimal challenge level. Understand that practicing a new skill requires finding the right balance between difficulty and your current abilities. For simpler aspects of the skill or tasks you've already mastered, challenge yourself by increasing the complexity or speed. On the other hand, for more intricate or challenging aspects, slow down and break them down into smaller, manageable steps. Adjusting the challenge level to match your current proficiency will help you stay engaged and make steady progress. Manage stress and avoid extremes. Recognize that too much stress or pressure can hinder your learning process while too little can lead to complacency or lack of motivation. Maintain a healthy level of challenge that stretches your abilities without overwhelming you. Be aware of signs of stress or burnout and take regular breaks to relax and recharge. Utilize stress management techniques such as mindfulness exercises or positive self-talk to keep stress levels in check and maintain a positive mindset during your skill practice. Finally, one of the worst things you can do when working with both your aspirations and your limitations is to incorrectly ascribe difficulty to your innate core self. 
What this might mean is that you push yourself beyond your zone of competence, fail, and then immediately self-criticize and conclude that you're stupid and can't do it. Instead, get neutral and get curious. If you slow down or ease up on the complexity, does the task become easier? At what point are things manageable? And when do they tip over into being unmanageable? By the same token, don't find yourself experiencing boredom and immediately conclude that the task is worthless or uninteresting. Dial up the challenge a notch first and observe your reaction. Summary To learn effectively, you need more than talent. You need a solid plan of attack, the right mindset, and plenty of contingency planning, i.e., you need to learn how to learn. Not all practice is created equal. There are three types, naive, purposeful, and deliberate practice, the latter being most effective. This is where we act deliberately in a well-defined field with clear distinctions between experts and novices, with a skilled coach providing tailored practice strategies and feedback. The deliberate practice roadmap is a reiterative spiral. It begins with finding a teacher, then entails assessing your limits, setting smart goals, focus practice, and feedback, and then it repeats. Slow practice is practicing a sequence at a slower tempo first and gradually increasing the speed to reach the desired performance level. Energy isn't infinite. We need to be strategic to make the best use of it. Energy tends to be higher at the start of a session, so practice the more challenging tasks first. Aim for skills that are about 5-10% to above the current maximum skill level. Be willing to push outside your comfort zone. Learning proceeds through four stages. Unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence. Pitch your efforts according to the needs and skills of the level you're at. The difference between actual competence and potential competence is called the zone of proximal development, where you can achieve with the help of a more knowledgeable other. Working within this sweet spot can help you optimize your practice. The Yerkes-Dodson Law shows that performance improves with moderate pressure, reaches a peak, but declines if pressure becomes too high or too low. Try to find the optimal stress and challenge level, which may change over time. That's all for today on the Science of Self. Remember, the Zone of Proximal Development is your guide to stepping outside your comfort zone and reaching your full potential. Embrace the learning process, find your more knowledgeable other, and don't be afraid to challenge yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 
It helps us reach more listeners and keep these valuable conversations going. But for more insights and resources on self-improvement, visit our website at bit.ly slash peterhollins. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep exploring the science behind your best self.